Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Comms Coffee Club, episode five. I'm your host, Max Forsyth, and delighted this week to bring you the wonderful Madeline Little, uh, who is the founder of Dornay Communications, uh, but previously uh, led communications globally, globally for Dun & Bradstreet, Aon JLL, and before that, um, she worked agency side at Citygate, where uh, her first ever job uh, involved walking into a meeting room and working on the IPO of Orange Mobile back in the day, um, a long time ago now. But yeah, her career is is fascinating. It's taken her all across the world, uh, world from London to Singapore, um, to working with the Americas and. Yeah, we get stuck into the weeds of all things comms, her favourite CEO to work for, uh, and uh, what the future of communications holds, and uh, what she would change if she could. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to this episode. I hope you like it. If you do, please like and subscribe on YouTube, uh, or follow us on your favourite podcast platform, and look forward to bringing you more content soon. So, Madeline Little, welcome to the Coms Coffee Club podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Max. Not a problem. Pleasure. Uh, and how's your week going? I know it's a sort of Thursday afternoon when we're filming. So, yeah, can you tell us all what you've been up to? Yeah, it's been good. It's been busy. Um, I can't quite believe it's Thursday, actually. Um, I've just been really focusing on um, pulling together the programmes that I'm offering clients um really sort of looking at the the detail of that which has been really it's actually been really good fun I think I, I posted a video I think yesterday on it um I'm just really enjoying it I'm kind of almost back to basics and and remembering what I love doing so that's been great nice super and we'll come back to what you're doing now later on but let's wind the clock all the way back how did you get into communications? A long way back, yes. Um, so I think like quite a lot of people in the industry, I kind of fell into it a little bit by accident. Not completely by accident, but it certainly wasn't a big game plan for me. I'd graduated and I had worked a couple of years in a research company um, focusing on French markets, so really up to my French, which had gone from university French to business French. Um, I then got a job at the London Stock Exchange and was absolutely, it was the worst move ever. I was so bored. It wasn't me. So I was desperate to move. Um, yeah. and, and what were you doing there? Was it, was it, was it not a console, I'm assuming? Um, no, no, it wasn't. I'm like, what was I doing there? It was a lot to do with um, numbers, data, the, the closest okay. I got yeah, yeah. to anything with media, I think, was I used to have to send data to the Financial Times on a weekly basis. Got it. And it was, a, you know, it was a lovely group of people, but it just wasn't right for me. Yeah. So I um, spotted an ad in the Financial Times um, for um, Citygate G. Rogerson, so big financial city PR agency. And this was yes. in the hard copy newspaper on a Thursday. That's how long ago it was. Um, yes. And it was a tiny little ad, but it caught my eye um, looking for people who had language skills and sort of finance city experience. And I kind of thought, well, that's me. I'll, um, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I applied and I, I didn't, I don't think I truly knew what I was applying for, to be honest, now that I look at it. But, um, 
So I, but I got the job um, and joined the international team there. So focusing very much on French clients and the the French market. Um, And yeah, was there for for three years. And that was my my real intro into communications. Um, And it was, you know, it was quite sort of, now that I look back, it was a real, it was a very steep learning curve, but so interesting. Mm. And we were very focused on IPOs, M&As, that kind of thing. Um, yes. You know, lots of ex-national journalists, you know, working there. Um, yeah. So people to learn from. Right. So, yeah, it was, and- it was great. Um, and then I made the shift, the move in-house um, to JLL after going traveling for a bit um, and started actually as a contractor, which I think is a really interesting and, and good way for people to potentially move you know roles and into new companies because you you get to interview them and they get to interview mm. you and you can really see if it's a good fit yes although uh, um at, at what a, what would have been a relatively sort of junior age and junior part of your career mm. often a lot of contractors particularly communications tend to go the other way around that tends to be something people do when they're when they're a bit more experienced and uh yeah so yeah kind of what was that like going in and uh yeah actually yeah you're right I mean it was quite I I can't even remember how I found it either but you know I feel like it was fate um as you know we we sort of three months passed and I think all sides involved decided it was a good fit um so I I went on to stay for gosh 12 years so um it was definitely the right move um and I think it was it was really interesting because you know that's a very different environment um to being agency side um yes yeah obviously and you know really focusing just on one sector so real estate and you know really focused in on PR and media relations back then but I guess Mm. Because your sector focus really under starting to understand the value of trade media and how that works and building yes. relationships there, that kind of thing. And, you know, real estate then and now has a very strong trade media. So I mm. think I, you know, built a lot more experience and knowledge during that yes. time. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and what was the biggest, uh, yeah, because you talk about the, yeah, you talk about the quite, quite clear, um, changes and differences between agency and in-house what was the biggest uh shock for you going from that agency environment in-house um I think really getting to know stakeholders I suppose because when you're agency and quite junior you're not really the one who's always that close to the client. You're kind of there in the background taking orders from the more senior client-facing people, certainly back then, mm. kind mm. of getting the work done. Um, mm. And then suddenly you find yourself in-house and sort of business partnering with different you know, parts of the business and quite senior people. Yes. So I think that's that's great experience. I think that really sort of gets you to up your game and learn how to deal with different types of stakeholders, you know, kind of, you know, some who maybe are more tricky. Um, and I think also mm. I do remember back then, the agency side, you know, the, we worked really hard. And, the ex, you know, there was no sort of, you would never push back on it. You just 
got on with it. So very late nights, um, all nighters over the weekend. It was the nature, I guess, of the work when it was sort of IPOs and M and A. But suddenly, in house, felt a little bit more Mm. sort of sticky. Yeah, and just thinking about yeah, and just thinking about the IPO and M and A work agency side back then. I guess at a relatively junior level, what did that literally look like? What were you doing on those late nights? So actually my first project um, was the IPO of Orange, um, the mobile phone company. Oh, wow. Okay, yes. Yeah. The France Telecom had bought and then would decided to IPO. And I mean, I think my first day in the office, I went to a meeting with a lot of people in it. And my boss was traveling, um, so I hadn't met her yet. Well, I had interviewing, but, you know, she wasn't yes. there. And I remember sitting in the meeting and just thinking, and they were using project code names, so I didn't know who the companies were. I didn't know. I was literally so in at the deep end. It just makes me laugh looking back. Um, but for that, that was a really huge project. And I ended up running all of the websites. So mm-hmm. um, it was a retail offer in across four countries in Europe. So we had to have these wow. huge websites in different languages. You can imagine it was kind of, you know, having to have everything checked by legal to sort of down to the last, you know, crossing every T, dotting every I. So it was really detailed work. Um, so that was actually the first thing. Um, but then you'd sort of yes. be involved on this sort of when it came to launch the media side and sort of supporting directors um, on that side of things as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, that must have, yeah, that must have been quite something. And I think, yeah, it, it for someone like myself who, um, you know, uh, yeah, who 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 wasn't in the workforce at that time, I probably t- I probably take for granted um, uh, just how easy and quick it is to even things like be able to update website copy and get all of that sorted. I I can't imagine with the stress and pressure of the deadlines anyway. But then doing what we take and think is very easy and quick stuff now was not nearly as quick or as easy back then. You know, that's, that is so true. And it makes me think, and the irony, you know, that it's a mobile phone company that I was working for. Um, because, you know, at the time, we, I think we had Nokia phones um, that would make calls and send texts. And that was probably also why we were spending so much time in the office, because, you know, there just wasn't the opportunity to work in the same way that we can now. And Blackberries didn't even exist then. But there was a lot of talk, um, obviously, meetings with the clients, a lot of talk about blackberries and how we're going to be able to be on the internet and I do remember thinking how is that is that really going to happen I can't imagine that um which is just crazy when you look at things now and where we are and how we can work and be mobile and do things quickly it's just it makes me feel very old (laughs) yeah well yeah although yeah I mean I can remember my first mobile yeah it was a Nokia 3310 and the most exciting thing about it was being able to play snake you know (laughs) And then you think how far we've come now with all of our stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's wild. Um, yeah, great. So yeah, so then you moved into into JLL real estate. Mm. So you went kind of temp to perm, and then yeah, kind of you were there for quite a while. But also that job took you took you around the world as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I um, I was heading up. Um, the team for the UK and EMEA um, and then in it was 2011 got the opportunity to move um, 
to look after external comms for the Asia Pacific region, yes. um, based in Singapore. And yeah, it was, you know, at, at the time I was a little bit hesitant. I think some, you know, I think you just can be. Sometimes you think, oh my goodness, that's huge. And how will that work? Moving my life to the other side of the world. Um, I don't really know anyone, you know, sort of finding all these reasons to not do it. And yes. it was actually my, um, well, it was the lady um, who I met up with just last week, actually, um, Nicole Worthington, who was at JLL for a long time and out there and persuaded me and kind of, um, yeah, she's very persuasive, um, persuaded me it would be a great idea. And and also my my late dad, who at the time just sort of said, why are you even hesitating? It's like, what is the worst that can happen? You've just got to grab opportunities. And he's sort of like, yes. you know, if it, if it all goes wrong, if everybody's horrible, the job's terrible, it's absolutely awful, you know, it's a disaster, yes. you can just come back and get another job. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's very yeah, true. Yeah. So he sort of gave me the the kind of final push to to just go for it. And um, yeah, it was, I was there for three and a half years and it was a, a really, really great experience. It was so interesting. You know, I think when you've been in um, the UK and Europe and working a lot mm. with colleagues in the US, um yes. just the culture and the and at that time so it's what 2011 it just the markets everything about it felt really sort of exciting innovative fast-paced just mm. there was just such a sort of buzz around and I, I think definitely in real estate obviously at the time but I think probably in other sectors as well it was just a real sort of can-do attitude which certainly when I look back perhaps you know, didn't it didn't really feel like that all the time in the UK and, and with really established European markets. So it was great. It was refreshing. Yeah, no, nice. And yeah, so stationed out in Singapore, but then did you have responsibility for the whole Asia region? Yeah, I did. So it was at the time, I think it was about 16 markets. So that was sort of in across to India, sort of up to China, Japan, um, yes. all of Southeast Asia, Australia and New Zealand. So a really diverse, big mm. region. Yes. Yeah. And tell us what is comms like in that part of the world compared to the UK, Europe, US? Um, I think there are... There are a lot of similarities, um, but then I think when you get down to that individual market level, things can be quite different, just the way mm. people work with media and expectations. And, you know, it's it's such a diverse region. You know, on the one hand, you've got Australia and New Zealand that you could compare much more directly with, you know, the UK and Western Europe markets, well, Europe overall and the mm. US. Um, and then, you know, you had China where you know totally different media landscape obviously um yes very unique um india again totally different um just a huge media sort of landscape there it's just it's it's enormous and yes you know people are very interested in they just love information it seems that sort of was my experience um so it's trying to sort mm. of sift through all of that um, and then things like going, you know, Japan was, I remember the first time I went there and, and visited, um, they still had these kind of, um, the journalists would go, sector journalists would go and work um, 
all together in sort of office press offices that were within sort of the government department. So there was sort of one for mm-hmm. real estate, and there was still actually pigeonholes, like physical pigeonholes that companies okay. would put their press releases into. And you sort of that must have been like 2012, 13, and you just think what? it was it was wow. it was so interesting. Okay. It was just totally yeah. unexpected. Really interesting. And, and, yeah, there's that sort of formality. So I think I think a lot of principles are applicable wherever you are. And obviously working for a global company, that's what you're really looking to do. You're looking to create that sort of consistent approach and standards, processes, et cetera, obviously messaging um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being able to adapt it for, for, for each market and sort of taking, you know, those local differences and nuances into account. So trying to work with people to do that. Yes, of course. So then after Singapore, back to London with JLL? Right. Yes, yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, into a global role, actually, um, because I'd kicked off a project when I was in Asia around, um, well, back then we called it brand journalism, but sort of basically con- owned content. So oh. I came back to London and I was really focused on running that side of things for JLL um, yes. so that's owned co- created content um yeah and also did a lot actually for some reason became the person who did a lot um with the World Economic Forum because JLL was a strategic partner mm. Mm. yeah it's interesting uh, yeah and you mentioned the content piece um even in the even in the seven years that I've done this job the the explosion, but I'd even say you look at any communications brief now, and I would compare it to a job description from seven years ago. Content, yeah, sort of the earned media piece is right up there on job descriptions now. Um, and it wasn't so much when I started. I think yeah, it really dominates, particularly in. Um, uh, in broader sort of B2B markets. You know, it, it's content is almost external communications now, they're interchangeable, aren't they? Yeah, it's um it's so interesting. And I think back when we all became it, it started to become a thing and we everyone was becoming aware of it and thinking, oh what, you know, what is this thing and we should be doing it. Um mm-hmm. it, certainly my experience was that, that it fell into the remit of what was then PR. And I don't know, Mm. I think it was just something that happened. Um, I don't know why that was. My guess is because I think the PR teams were seen as people who were good, right, you know, could write well and could tell stories. So it kind of felt like a fit, whereas perhaps our marketing colleagues were seen more as kind of, I don't know, um, I don't know. I don't want to insult anybody, <laughs> but certainly my really good at building, really good at building campaigns on HubSpot. Exactly, maybe it's that. Um, yeah. But now, and, and I think now that's you know, and I'm sure you will see it doing what you do. I think it's so interesting because it almost feels like it's. I guess it depends on the company, you know, what they decide to put into that external comms remit, and. I think there's a lot of grey areas and that whole sort of marketing communications alignment and integration. I mean, we could have a whole hour's discussion 
just on that and not come up with a solution. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it, yeah it, it's in, um, yeah, I think from my perspective, it's in, uh, in my view would be it's in, it's in transition. Um, look at, yeah, you know, we, look, we talk about content, look at social media. When I started, social media was in marketing. No, mm. was that in, was that was that sort of with education, um, or it was sat with digital with the website guys, but they were more closely aligned to IT, so that was always a bit a bit contentious. But I think, yeah, most certainly most B two B clients that I know, yeah, content and social media has started to move across into the communications team. What that hasn't been backed up by necessarily is it hasn't been reflected in terms of headcounts and budget just going to say that <laughs> mm. <laughs> um you know there are there are still uh, you know very you know kind of very sort of public knowledge it, it it wouldn't take anybody long to go on linkedin and look at a lot of you know large organizations and stick in marketing sort of um, job titles versus communications job type and you can just you can see the enormous difference in the size of the teams and and that is still there it'll be interesting to see be interesting to see whether that changes um yeah, i think uh, i think one thing i have noticed with marketing is it's seemingly becoming a lot more closely certainly visibly aligned with with sales um and a yeah. lot of the data strategy behind the sales piece and the sales funnel and yes. a lot more of the creative elements of moving across to communications. Um, but still, yeah, yet to be seen in terms of budget and headcounts. But uh, it, it should it, it should work itself out. But, hey, it's also not a particularly um, inviting environment in the UK at the moment to be making those large investments. So I think, yeah, we're kind of in the transition phase where everyone is sort of, sort of jostling for position a little bit. Um, and no one's quite willing to put the money where their mouth is, mm. if I can say. No, that's so interesting, and I agree. I think um, I think the main thing for any company though to think about is just sort of it's just to be clear, because there's no there's no absolutely correct you know way that this is the only way to do it and to structure it. Mm. I think mm. people come unstuck and teams get fed up, and it just gets frustrating when there's a bit of a lack of clarity over who actually owns what and maybe a few people are trying to own something or nobody's or it's falling through the gaps because nobody's because everyone thinks someone else is doing it and or there's just not that clarity in structure and I think you know there are various ways you can get it and it depends on yeah the you know the resource the budget the priorities the skill set it's just so many I think that's what makes it really tough is that there's no one size fits all um mm. so mm. yeah mm. yeah no it's true i think uh perhaps that also sometimes slightly feeds into you know, i am certainly of the opinion that communications is a is a fairly transient uh function and skill set and people you know can very competently move about sectors but often mm. i can honestly count on one hand the amount of times as a recruiter that I've had a brief 
where a client has said to me, I don't want someone from our industry. Because they don't want to confront anything that might upset the apricot or how things are structured or how, you know, and do things differently. It's, a, it's very interesting. I Honestly, I, I can count, yeah, probably less than five times I've had that. Um, which is, when you think about communications itself, is quite transient, but clients, on the other hand, don't want that. It's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I've had that experience. Um, but at the same time, I did hear of something recently and they'd, it was a, a B2B company and they actually decided to go with someone who had a B2C background and they deliberately made that choice and that decision because they wanted to inject that kind of different perspective in. Um, so yeah, I think I that's... Mean, I mean, City Bank did it. Yes. And Citibank in the UK made a very deliberate decision. You know, I think you look at a lot of their communications team. A lot of them are now from, you know, broader sort of consumer backgrounds and retail and supermarkets, etc., rather than yeah, from a from a sort of financial services. So yeah, mm. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's 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 rarer rather than the norm. Um, so yeah, so JLL. So you've done so many years. That JLL did you do in total? It was twelve years. It was 12 years, but it didn't feel, I think, because of having, you know, when you have the opportunity to, well, to progress in your career, to take on more responsibility, and then obviously moving regions, um, and just working on, you know, really different, you know, interesting um, projects, and, and, you know, it's such a huge business. So, but yeah, I kind of got to the point where I was thinking, um, you know, I'm, you'll cut me in half, and there'll be the logo through me. So it's probably time to make a change. And so made the decision to move to Aon so um yeah different so then I guess maybe I'm bucking the trend there because they were yeah, willing yeah, yeah. to me um even though I'd not I mean I did have city experience I suppose from way back when but you know not specifically um kind of risk management or sort of insurance reinsurance yeah um, and what was that like going from real estate into into that market um there are actually there are a lot of similarities in terms of the company sizes, um, both listed um, on New York, both actually headquartered in, well, big presences headquartered in Chicago in the same building as it turned out. So okay. it's kind of, yeah. I went over to um, in the Aon Center in Chicago and I went to see, meet new colleagues after, soon after I joined and then was able to also have coffees with colleagues from JLL that I just left. So that was kind of. Oh, nice. wow. So. Oh wow! So JLL don't 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 have their own JLL towers in Chicago. No, they don't typically own their own buildings. They would um, lease them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. So yeah, um, and I joined um, Aon to head up, actually to head up external comms sort of across the EMEA region, um, and I joined so 2016, and then um, I think it was probably around 2017. Um, was asked to to step in and start working and, and heading up the internal comms team as well. So mm. although I'd sort of say dabbled in internal comms, I'd sort of always worked very closely with internal comms colleagues. Um, I'd not sort of, that was my sort of first um, step into that side of things. Mm. Um, and they mm. had a very established, a great team. We were just chatting. We've kind of yeah, yeah. Um, connections. Yeah, 
She's now retired, but yeah, kind of great lady, yeah. Um, and yes, that was great. And I think it, I think it sort of worked for lots of reasons for the company. But I think what was really great was being able to sort of start to see that, think about that integration piece, just in terms, I suppose, not full mm. integration, because obviously you've got specialists doing different things, but just that sort of alignment and really thinking about, you know, everything's become, because with, with social media, everything's just so blurred. The lines are blurred. People are mm. getting their information from all over the place. You mm. know, colleagues and employees will be looking sometimes more at external sources to kind of, you know, get info about the company and, and make their views, come up with their sort of opinions than, you know, sometimes yes. more than internal. So, so yeah, that was um, interesting and great. And then, I was there when COVID hit, and that's, I think, a lot of companies found that huge, that focus really suddenly shifted. Oh, God, yeah. The internal yeah, yeah. side. People thought, oh, my goodness, you know, we really need to pay attention to this. So, um, obviously, the ter- horrendous, terrible thing that was happening, but I guess it really sort of put internal comms as a profession, I think, sort of really front and centre and gave them the opportunity to kind of, you know, do their stuff and show their value. Yeah, so um, I'm going to guess this, but were you pretty much the first and last call of the CEO's day for a few months when it first kicked off? Yeah, it was. We had um, a, I'm trying to think what it was actually called, a sort of, um, how can it be embedded in my brain, Um, a sort of strategic response team that had, you know, representatives from across the business and it was run by our COO, but it was sort of, you know, and you had technology and HR and, you know, and comms mm. had a, that at that table very much, and yeah, it was daily calls, so it was quite it was quite intense. Yeah, and I guess yeah, also particularly being in the sector you're in, you've not only got uh, safety and well-being of your colleagues, but naturally being within the risk management and insurance space, mm. <laughs> something like COVID comes along, and of course we've all seen over the last few years, you know, there've been lots of debates, lots of legal cases, et cetera, with lots of insurers, you know, who's responsible, who's paying out, who isn't. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so on on top of the well-being of staff as well, that must have been, uh, even on the external communications front, must yeah. also have been really full on and um, obviously not something that most people are used to either. So learning curve for quite a lot of yeah. things as well, you're, right? You're, you're spot on there, actually, Max. And... I mean, in a, in a sense, so actually, when you're in that sector from an external comms perspective, you know, when when bad things happen, mm. um, you're often somehow involved or, or pulled in because you know media wants to know who's the broker, what's the involvement, what's the chance of you know payouts being made, what's yeah. the how mitigated. There's so many. So yeah, in that sense, I suppose COVID was another thing but clearly much you know just just so much bigger widespread and then yeah impacting the company in the way that you just described as well in terms of just operationally um the same as for everyone so it was certainly interesting times yeah yeah and then um yeah you moved on from Aon and uh yeah it's a couple of years at Dun and Bantry so yeah yeah yeah, so um, done. Obviously, a, a really established another. I seem to have a thing for US um, companies. So another really established um, brand in the the data and analytics space, and um, 
yeah, sort of, I think, nearly kind of up to 200 years. Um, so it was it was a new role that I stepped into and it was res- taking responsibility for all of the markets um, outside of North America. Um, yes. So it was just a real opportunity to, to start to build something. Um, there were some great people already in place and then it, I was lucky um, in that I was able to recruit a few more in. And yeah, we just built a really good um, sort of small but nimble team um, there and looking at internal and external comms, so sort of taking that integrated approach um, and worked really closely with marketing colleagues, actually. So I did actually report into the CMO there, but who had a comms background, which was really great. So I think it yeah, really, nice. it really sort of showed you how how that can work well in terms of sort of that alignment and thinking about what are the really big ticket themes and campaigns that we want to work on and what does everybody bring to the table um yes. so yeah so that was really that was good in that sense yeah interesting nice great and now obviously yeah you recently set up Dornay communications yeah here's your elevator pitch hey, about it. yes thank you um well yeah i just um i had got to the point where i just thought i, I really fancy a change and actually in all honestly at the time when I made that decision earlier this year I wasn't really sure what that change would be or what it would look like and I did actually think I'd be um, contracting having used contractors myself in the past I thought you know it's, I just was really seeking yes. variety um, and then actually as the months the sort of a couple of months passed and the more I thought about it I just really surprised myself by thinking I would actually really like to do my own thing and work directly with clients and I, I genuinely was quite shocked by that um that sort of realization because you know I was kind of always one to say I'll never go back agency side you know I'm in-house mm. That's even. Mm. but I suppose you know it's very different setting up on your own it's not the equivalent of yes. a sort of full-on full-service PR agency that's definitely not what I am um mm. so yeah I have um I've really sort of narrowed it down because it sort of was a, a, a real process of thinking because the thing is I've done a lot and but that doesn't really help people to say oh I can do like you know 50 things it's just yes. overwhelming and really unclear so it's kind of I've really sort of worked it worked through it and thought what is the thing that actually would really help people um and for me it's that whole sort of the strategy the planning for me that is the foundation of everything that you do and I think if we're really on with ourselves a lot of in-house people and I've had the I've had really positive experiences where it's gone really well and then I've had less positive Mm. not been as good as it could be and I just think if you don't have that nailed down you know you really you're not set up for success you'll be busy and you'll be kind of off fighting fires and doing things for people you know whoever's shouting the loudest or being the most difficult because you just want to placate them and have them go away because you know that's legacy oh well we've always done that so we'll just keep doing it Mm. I sort of realized I you know that is something that I think people could really not not everybody but definitely some people could really do with some help with and I think especially as you've mentioned you know budgets are tight um teams aren't massive you know they never are Mm. in house and in the biggest companies um 
So it's about having just sort of thinking you can bring somebody in to work alongside you to bring that sort of the expertise and the experience um, on a short term basis, but to really help you sort out yes. that strategy and planning piece. And especially if you are, you know, some people are sort of one man or woman bands. Um, you know, yeah, I've, yeah. I've I've seen job specs in the last six months, and sort of you know head of comms, and this is going to be as I know this is having to do one um and and it turns out there's no team <laughs> so you're kind of like oh okay head of com head of what nothing it's just literally you so I think people who are kind mm. of in that position um or maybe who are just very new to have just stepped up recently yes into a new role um yeah it's kind of I think they're the sort of people that I could really help um in terms of their their planning, their strategy, just kind of getting things sorted out. We've got a really good foundation to, to work with. Yeah, yeah, no, great. I think, yeah, you know, kind of take your point for people who may be relatively new into a head-off role. Um, no one really ever gets any training in this stuff. <laughs> it's just, here's a budget, uh, and now tell me how you want to spend it. And for a lot of people, yeah, I guess the first couple of times they do it, they wing it. Yeah, um, off you go. And I think that's yeah. If you've got good people around you to learn from, that's great. And I think it's so important because I think there are loads of great qualifications out there that you can choose to do and sort of, you know, whilst you're working. And, you know, I've done that myself. But I think so much of it you get, I think you build your expertise and your your abilities and your skill set in comms because you get to work if you're lucky to work with really good people mm. who mm. are willing to give you the time to you know to teach you. Um, and actually, yeah, my video I did do a little video today. I realized it was World Teachers Day, um, and yeah. it just made me think. It's that kind of it's it's people giving that time and being able to help um, you know other people to sort of move along and, and to kind of build up that mm. skill set but yeah I think that's mm. what that's for me at the moment I think sort of the sweet spot on what I really want to focus on so helping yeah. and I enjoy it it's I've always loved nice. you know, doing that sort of thing yeah great and and even for the more experienced people having a second pair of eyes to look over something and brush some ideas out um yeah it's amazing how you can get very you can get very blinkered if it's just you putting a strategy or plan together. So having someone else yeah. to, yeah, sort of run those ideas by and, uh, yeah, you know, some of it may just be a sort of confirmatory nod and some of it actually, you know, needs some work, right? So. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think when you're in-house, if you've been there a while, you can get, yeah, you just don't, you're not really sort of connecting you're not seeing you're not talking so much to people outside you just can get and you're so busy you just get like you said just completely blinkered like this and I just think that's I think having someone as well who can just be quite objective who's not being stressed out by all the politics and all the stuff that goes on internally can just sort of like you said it's the bouncing ideas it's sanity checking things um it's just having someone you know whether it's someone a bit more experienced or just a peer to sort of go right let's get this done let's get it nailed so yeah yes yeah smashing so let's get into the uh into the meaty questions everyone always wants to know the answers to what's been your favorite campaign you've run over your career 
Um, I think it is a campaign, but it's also it was bigger than that. I think it was the JLL um, Real Views project, which was the um, sort of um, brand journalism project that I mentioned that I set up in Asia Pacific because it really no one was no one in real estate was do had done anything like that. Um, so we knew we were up against the competition because we thought they're definitely going to be looking at it as well. And it was a real, it took about six, eight months to get off the ground. And it was a real labor of love. Um, it was totally different, totally new. It was a new way of putting content out there, putting, telling stories. It was a global project, although we were running it from Asia. So we had to sort of get the buy-in from everybody in all the regions globally and, yeah, it was just to get it out and launched. And then everything, so from the campaign perspective, everything that went with that in terms of how are we promoting this, um, yes. we, we sort of had organic, but we also had paid, we had some budget to use on the sort of paid social and search side, which was quite, you mm. know, that was for me to get involved in that side of things. So it was just really, it just felt like such an achievement. Um, and it was yes. just, it was genuinely at the time look at it now and think oh what's you know that's not very different but at the time it really was different and new um and we went on to win awards which was you know which was great and um yeah I just that was something that I still I still look back and think guys I'm you know quite proud of that and I really enjoyed it yes great and for anyone not familiar with what real views is can you just paint a picture of what one week of content would look like yeah sure so and actually I should say they um I mean this is obviously going back quite gosh 10 years so um it's since been integrated into their sort of they've had big changes their website so if you if you go to JLL Real Views you won't find a website sadly but um I do have some very old screen grabs um so Mm -hmm. yeah you know we we would be planning out we'd have sort of content calendars we'd be looking to have um, you know, written content, we'd be looking to have video, infographics, slideshows, you know, really trying to mix right. it um, We had our sort of um, our buckets of sort of topics and themes. Um, and, you know, that in itself, it was such a learning experience as well, because just realizing yes. how much effort needed to go into that. Um, yes. And then making sure that everybody internally knew about it. So you were really, you know, really making sure the content was, you know, obviously not just used once, but like multiple times, getting people to sign up to the, the um, to subscribe to the newsletter, using the content kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. We had quite a, tough, we had quite a hard schedule for ourselves. We were, we were publishing at least once a day. Wow, yeah. And multi-channel content is what everyone does now but yeah it's it's incredibly labor intensive as you say so many social media channels now as well so you have to chop up the content to you know kind of be able to be the right size and fit and even things like video content has to be different frame rates for linkedin twitter it's just yeah it's enormous isn't it um so yeah so that must have been uh yeah that must have been a great day when it finally launched and all that blood sweat and tears have gone into it yeah very yeah yeah, very good day right and then yeah who who's been your favorite ceo to work for in terms of their communications and why um 
I've worked with, there have been so many really great um, leaders that I've worked with, but if I had to pick one, and she is actually a CEO, um, I think I'd pick our, I say our, I've not, I'm not working there anymore. The <laughs> um, CEO of Aon in the UK, um, a woman called Julie Page, because she, yes. um, she was just so, on, in so many ways, she was just such a great leader to work with. She was um, incredibly, she was very supportive of communications. Um, I think she could really see the value that we created both for on the internal and external side. Um, yes. But I think at the same time, she was always willing to learn and open to sort of learning more about it. Um, she... She would always listen. Um, she would challenge if she felt she needed to or didn't agree with something, but always in a very, you know, yes. civilized way. Um, she was just and and just very down to earth and very and then from her so meaning from her own sort of perspective, then as a sort of a key mm. person for us as well. She was just very authentic. Um, yes. And and truly and actually so passionate about me. Um, yes. So all that you really want, you know, whether you're talking to internal or external audiences, and I think just that piece around giving the time is just so important because there's nothing worse than you know, comms being tacked on at the end as a sort of last minute consideration um, and trying to trying to get something done, and there's just not enough time being given for it that's just so difficult and frustrating um yes uh, lost count of the amount of conversations i've had with your peers where communications is involved at the end of something or the end of the planning process and not at the start it doesn't matter whether it's external whether it's internal whether it's uh, whether it's an all change, a redundancy process, mm. a campaign, yeah, the amount of times communications is brought in as a bit of an afterthought, um, yeah, is infuriating and depressing. But it's but it's great that your experience um, at Aon was yeah was very different, and the authenticity piece mm. as well. I really, uh, yeah, I've really honed in on that word because it's great because. You're so right. If someone is naturally authentic, you don't really need that much media training because it lands well. Uh, yeah. but that's that's hard to teach. You either have it or you don't. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, and as well, actually, another word that um, springs to mind is empathy. I feel like she was very, you know, she always would consider how it was feeling especially from an internal comms perspective I suppose you know how it was mm. feeling for employees um, and colleagues so and I think then that that really creates that sort of level of interest in you know well, what are we saying how are we crafting them what are the messages how are we crafting them how are we positioning them that kind of thing so it makes a huge difference for sure yeah that final question if there was one thing you could change about communications, what is it? Oh, only one. <laughs> yeah, you've got to choose. Um, 
That's a really tough question because um, there's just too many things to choose from. Okay, um, you can have a couple. I can have one. Um, I think... I think being... I think it would be great for more companies and leaders to see it as really as a strategic function, as a strategic business function. Um, but I do think we we have a role to play in that ourselves as practitioners. Mm, mm. And if you feel this and anyone listening, but I feel like there's so much chat at the moment, especially on LinkedIn, um, you know, around this kind of thing and lamenting, you know, oh, we're being asked to do this and we're always asked to, you know, and things that aren't our job and, or, you know, which mm. or, and I kind of, I get it because I've been there. I think we all do. But at the same time, I just, I, I, I hope that rather than just, it's great to be able to vent frustrations and have a laugh about mm. it as well. Things are ridiculous. Mm. Our sort of networks, but then I just hope at the same time that we are all taking proactive steps to kind of change those perceptions where they need changing, because if we don't, it's not going to happen. Yeah, so I put up. Yeah, I put up a post uh, yesterday, the day before. Um, actually, it it was around interview prep. Um, you know, really doing your research on the company where you're interviewing. You know, going through annual reports, reading CEO interviews. You know, getting getting really deep into into the operational side of the business. Because yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. I get it. And and I do agree. I think mm, put this in the right way. I think yeah, my LinkedIn feed can sometimes be full, full of I'd say more on the internal communication side of things rather than the external of, of you know mm. we're delivering this, we're delivering that. Some of the some of the softer communications topics, perhaps some some of the more and how do we say this societal issues which are being communicated we're not going to get into a debate as to whether some of those are right or wrong but um it fundamentally if you want more resource and you want more trust and you want to be really at that top table you've got to really be linking whatever you do from a communication perspective to the underlying objectives of the business so for most businesses you know it's turnover, it's client satisfaction, growth, if you're in a growth phase, you know, whatever, you know, shareholder value, doesn't matter what it is, but whatever those strategic pillars are, mm. that's that's that that's what you've got to be shouting about. That's what gets the attention of the C suite. You know, because mm. they're focused on running, you know, they're focused on running the business, right? They've got yeah. You know, they've got so many different functions and strands underneath them that they've got their strategy. They know what they want to achieve. They just want all of those different functions firing back against that. Yeah. And if you're not, you're not going to get what you want. And, you know, I think I think that's so right. And what I'd add to that, I think the thing that we've struggled with, certainly back in the day and sort of over the years, was, you know, that that difficulty and you know how do we actually show our value how do we measure it how do we get tangible mm. you know metrics kind of the mm. odd gut feeling that oh we've got some coverage in you know exo in the wall street journal and we know that's great we just know it's just you know a set of feeling i've got and it, yes it is great but it's like but what can you and i think 
I think that's really obviously as, as time has passed and you know everything's mm. become so much more digitalized and just everything's so smart mm. and you know, now there's there's mm. so many more ways you can show the value and you can measure things but it's still hard I think it still can be hard compared to say the way that marketing can look at metrics and obviously certainly sales yes. and what you mentioned about sales and marketing being so close I think that's that is quite true so it's kind of working out for you what what you can with your budget available and the tools you've got at your you know disposal how can you actually show and prove that value um apart other than you know some yeah. crisis happens and then and then funnily enough suddenly leadership do really, the they do yeah. some value yeah. all those other times in between the crisis situations you know you want to be able to be consistently banging that drum um, yeah oh yeah no and and, and and I think on the sort of proactive side, um, yeah, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, but I thought, you know, actually, you know, communications leaders perhaps um, spend more time with the sales team, spend more time with the key accounts team, ask to go on a few client reviews or client meetings, ask to go on a couple of pitches. Don't have to say anything, but you can just introduce yourself and sit there. You know, just take anything on board. You might, you know, you might get a few wins of, Oh, I saw your piece in the FT, or I saw it here, or whatever. But mm-hmm. you, then you just start to get. I mean, I know it's not. You know, it's quite a hard metric in terms of hours and manpower and labour to do. But I think little things like that, you know, build that trust. So then, you know, then you do get the accounts team and the sales team coming back into leadership meetings and going, oh. Yeah, Madeline, you know that kind of campaign you did a couple of weeks ago? Oh, I was just out with X key account, X key client, and they mentioned they read your thing in the thing and they thought it was great. You know, just little mm-hmm. little cues like that. Um, also, I think really obvious things, um, I thought this as well, you know, uh, the storytelling piece lands so well now, doesn't it? And I think, I think a lot of companies and comms teams are getting quite good putting together the internal communication story side of things and showing the people side of the business great um if a client's willing like client case studies client storytelling client interviews hmm. that sort of thing because that's a very visual thing to the ceo or to leadership of ah, oh, okay our client's been willing to uh, sing our praises yeah very publicly yeah, that's the dream, isn't it? I know how difficult it can be to get clients to agree to doing that. Um, mm. And it gets discussed endlessly and then it doesn't always come to fruition, which is really frustrating. But then you see, especially when you see really big, big global brands doing it incredibly well and you just think there's the proof that it's sort of possible. So it's yeah, just... I mean, it might even just be, uh, Joe, it's probably much easier uh, I'm just I'm I'm just guessing here, but if but if you ask the CEO when they're next seeing a key client, if the key client wouldn't mind wouldn't mind doing a piece, <laughs> some will say no, some will say yes. I but hey, I and people um, people talk about writing it into contracts and things, but I don't feel like that. Oh. Works. <laughs> writing into yeah, I yeah, I don't, I, yeah, it doesn't because then also you don't really get. You don't get authentic stories then you get you know you're gonna start getting legal involved in compliance and um, mm. it's not 
what it's meant to be about, right? And of course, you know, you can get legal in compliance to read over your copy if you've got that authentic story, of course. But yeah, I think I think when you start getting it contractually involved, uh, yeah, it doesn't work, does it? Super. Um, yeah, final thing. Uh, yeah, have you got anything that you'd like to plug or, yeah, kind of any upcoming events or appearances you're doing? Gosh, anything to plug? Um, I think really just to sort of follow on from what I was talking about in terms of what I've set up with my um, business and what I'm offering to clients, um, really just, yeah, to reach out. If if the whole sort of strategy planning side is something that you feel could be better, could do with some work, um, mm -hmm. I'd be very happy to have a chat to sort of to work that out because there's a few different ways we can work together sort of from kind of quite short and sweet um you know if you just need someone sort of to bounce ideas off and quickly sanity check then to sort of um a, a couple of ways of actually working through a program um either over a period of um weeks through sessions or sort of intensive one day so yeah um very happy to chat with people to see how i can help super wonderful um and best way to contact you um probably via linkedin to be honest and i will obviously tag you in this as well so people thank can get hold of you that way thank yeah. you um because actually yeah connect on linkedin and then everything else is there so that's probably the easiest way super smashing well madeline little thank you very much for coming on the comms coffee club podcast um uh, genuinely really enjoyed that and some really interesting insights and and some great stories so thank you thank you so much as well i've i've really enjoyed it too so appreciate you inviting me on thanks no, no worries it's a pleasure see you soon thanks <laughs>